friends, colleagues, and rainy day listeners, welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz. We are your hosts. I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we are delighted to be joined by Todd Kamensik. Todd, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Todd, tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from. Okay. Uh, yeah. I am Todd. I am from, <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Vancouver. I study uh, neuroscience here at UBC. I'm doing my PhD. I'm in my second year. And for that, I'm studying adults with autism and how they see the world. Wonderful. I'm looking forward to this episode because uh, as we were sort of talking off mic, we haven't really do- dove into this at all. We, we It's outside of our comfort zone. Uh, we haven't had an opportunity to interview and talk with anybody about this. So uh, this is going to be great. This is a, a place of naivety. Um, and a Which place is, of, yeah, it's not uncommon for us to be super naive. About yeah, things. yeah. So this yeah, will be really right exciting. Yeah. It'll be good. Um, yeah. Not to mention, it's nice to actually be back in studio. I can look across the table and see Todd <laughs> and I can avoid looking at Drake. So yeah, this is great. I mean, and also because, you know, your work is also about facial perception as well. I mean, that's what we're getting into. So yeah. we can see your face and perceive what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, that's great. We can take additional cues. Yeah, it's awesome. Perfect. This would have been perfect for uh, a video. We've got to do that eventually. We should do a video episode. Yeah, uh, We'll have you back on if we we do end up going video yeah well, uh, face perception would be great to have like some visual imagery yeah. yeah anyways enough of that uh todd where are we going today what are we going to be talking and learning about uh, well we can talk about whatever you want <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what what i research is face perception in autism uh in my master's degree i studied low level vision um so that would be like the building blocks that make what we see in the world what we see sure so these things are like orientation, lines, uh, spatial frequency, which is like amount of detail. Um, and now I'm looking at much higher order vision, which is face perception, uh, among many other things. Fantastic. Why don't we start, I think a logical place to maybe leap off from is how do we perceive faces? Yeah. That's a good question. Good <laughs> question. Yeah. Well, I know it's a loaded question. I think also an interesting thing is like you know what is perception in general. Like, I, I yeah. know I taught a bit about sensation perception, but just like visually sensing something isn't the same as perceiving it, right? Correct. Yeah. So in the world we have light reflecting off everything and coming into our eyes that hits the back of our retina. Mm-hmm. That message is then sent back to the very back of our brain, the uh, occipital lobe. Vision's cool because we have a whole lobe. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's the only sense. <laughs> And then after it hits the back, it kind of comes back forward towards the frontal lobe. And during all that processing, everything from the colors you're seeing, the shapes you're seeing, is being processed and put together into what we see in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, from simple things like looking down at a desk to seeing a computer, putting the shapes all together and creating an image that makes sense mm-hmm. in our environment. Right. Yeah. And so what's going on, I guess, within facial perception specifically, because there's so many different things moving and changing within a face based on you know so many different variables like talking leering <laughs> uh, <laughs> i don't know just like the way that the emotions that you're trying to emit i mean how can you pick those up how, how, how do researchers look at facial perception i guess so faces are cool because people in general are thought to be experts in faces this is a stimuli we see from basically the moment we're born um there are really funny studies of babies with cameras on their heads so we can see what the baby sees in the world and it's just huge faces smiling and making funny faces at them so from the moment we're born we're exposed to this stimuli um and by two months you can uh babies can tell kind of who they're looking at if they they can't say it but (laughs) uh they can start to recognize different facial expressions by like half a year um and then once we're older and we have enough experience or some people think we need all that experience 
um, we are considered experts. So that means we can recognize an identity from several different view viewpoints. Mm -hmm. So face not only is it dynamic and changing, the, the viewpoint's dynamic and changing. Sometimes you're looking at someone straight on. Sometimes they're looking at you at three quarters view. So maybe you can't see one of their ears. Right. <laughs> um, sometimes you're just looking sideways at someone. So at their profile and regardless of how you're looking at them, you know, it's them still. Mm -hmm. um, faces are also considered to be expert because in many categories of objects, people think we look at them in piecemeal fashion. So we put together different um, parts and those parts together then can make a hole and we know what that hole is. Mm -hmm. Faces are thought to be perceived uh, configur configuratively or as a whole. So we don't look at a face and individually go, okay, there's two eyes, a nose, a mouth, <laughs> Checks out. two ears, <laughs> yeah. hair, definitely a face. <laughs> um, we just look at a face and we know it's a face right away. All right. But I think an interesting question is like, would we be able to identify what emotions they're, they're emitting based on some of the parts, not the whole, right? I think especially with face perception, would that be kind of the things that we're getting at here is like you have to take the whole versus, you know, just looking at someone's eyes, you can say those eyes are, you know, fiery with anger, <laughs> but they might not actually be at all, right? Uh, can you, you know, separate those things? Or is it more just that's why you look at the whole or that's how we functionally look at the face as a whole? Uh, when, when we look at a face and we're trying to tell an expression, mm -hmm. maybe an emotion they're feeling or a thought, uh, it's much easier to do it if you have access to the whole face yeah mm -hmm. for for typical people mm -hmm. um but depending on the expression then it depends on if you just see the eyes some expressions are much easier to see like you said fear that's completely true mm -hmm. you can see fear anger much better in the eyes the eyebrows arch uh mm -hmm. maybe there's a bit of a squint or something <laughs> i'm squinting right now <laughs> um turn the lighting down <laughs> uh whereas a smile Mm -hmm. uh, some people say you really see a smile in the eyes, but it's more clear <laughs> by a mouth because you have that yeah. prototypical teeth yeah. are showing usually uh, the sides of your mouth are up. Um, and like the, you can tell the difference between the smile, like a genuine smile as well. I know there's like the Duchenne smile or whatever that mm -hmm. is. Like similarly, you can see those differences. Like people notice those differences, right? If you're pretty good at expression perception. Okay, yeah. Pretty, uh, some people are better than some others. Some people are definitely better than others. So right. some people... Uh, like people with autism mm -hmm. are shown to look more at the lower half of the face. Okay. Mm -hmm. So understanding expressions like happy in lots of studies are shown to be the exact same between someone with autism and someone without. Uh, whereas if they'd only have information from the eyes, some people struggle a lot more to figure out exactly what emotion they're seeing mm -hmm. uh, compared to a typically developed person. Right. Mm -hmm. Just for clarity's sake, the Duchenne smile yeah, the Duchenne, so the genuine smile, or uh, mm -hmm. it's my knowledge, at least the very basic knowledge I have on <laughs> smile research or just facial recognition research or uh, perception is that, you know, the Duchenne smile is just a genuine smile. If, if you are interested in like, you know, genuine, like if you can see a genuine mm -hmm. smile, that's the, the, the word they use is Duchenne smile. I imagine it's probably because of the researcher. I'll have to check that out. <laughs> We're going to have to I do can, a I lot can, of fact checking. I can episode, only so. assume it's named after a researcher. <laughs> um, it's actually named after one of the participants. So yeah. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but regardless, sorry. It's interesting to bring up uh, uh, a observing a real smile or a genuine smile. Because the stimuli used to measure lots of these different things are from face databases. So there's these databases and actors are hired 
and they come and they're like, okay, we're going to take a picture of you with a very happy face. So they put on, <laughs> so who knows if this is even a genuine <laughs> smile yeah, yeah. that people are being tested on, right. um, where in real life interactions, you, it's much more easier yeah, to I mean, tell. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. even if it's a fake smile, it's still trying to elicit that kind of that expression, right? Yeah. The, the smile is literally to show that you're happy, even mm-hmm. if it's not completely genuine. You still kind of re- can read that. Um, We're asking the actor to interpret a genuine smile and then give us what their interpretation of a genuine smile is. And then we're asking people whether that is, in fact, a genuine smile or not. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. it, it, the simple way to think of... Uh, we're going to get off smiles. Ah, uh, yes, very but, shortly. But, uh, I mean, I think the simple thing to think of is, like, you know, whenever someone makes you laugh or someone, you know, makes you smile genuinely, uh, you'll feel it. It's, it's, a, it's a different smile than, you know, just passing somebody and, you know, making us just smiling at them because you're, you're trying to be polite. Uh, those are very different things. And I think the facial recognition and perception is really cool work that I don't know anything about other than this Duchenne. <laughs> so I'm going to shut my mouth. Um, but yeah, so so within this work that you're, you're doing, Todd, um, so we know that you're looking at, you know, how uh, adults with, with autism um, perceive faces, but what's what else is going on? I know you're talking about social motivation as well. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 So So what is social motivation, I guess? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so social motivation is essentially your interest and enjoyment in social interactions. Um we assess social motivation with a scale that was developed at SFU, uh Simon Fraser University. Um and it is a more general social competence uh scale. It's just a self questionnaire you fill out. Um, and one of the domains that it assesses is social motivation. And so it might be a question like, uh, I enjoy interacting with others. Very simple. Mm-hmm. And then it's just, uh, I agree or very true, not true, uh, typical answers that you'd fill out. Mm-hmm. And then we take the total score of all the different questions and we can get a social motivation score. Right. And so people that are socially motivated are like things like personality, like a big factor within that, like, you know people say extroverts and introverts would introverts be low in social motivation per se like would you assume that i would assume yeah yeah i would assume if uh you introverts i guess you get your energy from being alone is, <laughs> yeah. is what people say yeah um then you'd be less motivated to be around other people right yeah and so that plays a part and uh you know are there other things that you know are interacting with social motivation i guess uh, why why look at social social motivation when it comes to facial perception i guess well, um, one of the hypotheses we're looking into is called the social motivation hy- hypothesis. So, <laughs> oh, aptly named. Uh, um, so this hypothesis states that the face deficits that are seen in the literature in people with autism, um, so these deficits are in identity perception um, or expression perception. So seeing, knowing who we're looking at and then being able to kind of tell what they're thinking, feeling, um, what their intentions are. Um, these two aspects of visual perception are, have shown been shown to be reduced in autism or not as good as typically developed populations. So autism first um, is a developmental disorder and it's characterized by deficits in social communication and interaction. So the characteristics that are diagnostic to the disease would automatically, you'd assume people would have lower social motivation because they're not as good at social situations, at reading other people, um, knowing when to jump in a conversation, knowing when to let someone else talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is that someone who is not as good at social situations and someone who maybe shies away from social situations now has reduced exposure to social stimuli. So what's the most social of all the stimuli? Our faces. Mm-hmm. So if faces um, 
your ability to recognize emotions and other people develops as you grow, then if you have reduced experience, then your ability when you're older won't be as good. Right. Mm -hmm. So the social motivation says that this aspect of autism is the thing causing reduced exposure and that it reduced exposure is leading to these deficits. Right. Yeah. And I imagine not being motivated would also be fueled by the fact that you're uncomfortable in those situations. And that also would, you know, filter back into not being able to perceive faces and know, know the differences. So, I mean, there's, I could see, I see that relationship for sure making sense. Yeah. So, I mean, what's, what have you found when it comes to, I mean, social comparison and face, face reception mm -hmm. and, uh, adults with autism. I mean, I imagine yeah. you're comparing to, uh, individuals with, or adults with, without autism, or is it just strictly within that population? Yeah. So we always have a, a control in mm -hmm. any kind of study we do. So we recruit, um, participants with autism from the, uh, what do you call it? Community. The community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then we always get a control group who are matched on gender and IQ and uh, okay. all those normal things because you don't want any other arguments to be made about um, mm -hmm. IQ or maybe because a lot of research says uh, females are better at faces than males. Right. Right. So okay. if we had overrepresentation of females, that wouldn't be good. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, so something our lab has found is some support for the social motivation hypothesis. Um, First, what we found was that expression perception and identity perception were correlated in autism. So these two abilities are thought to be processed separately in the brain. Yeah. Right. So we know from people with acquired prosopagnosia, which is face blindness following some sort of brain injury. So it can be a stroke or getting hit in the head really hard. Uh, what's I've never heard that before. What's face blindness? Like the, you can't see the face? Is that, it's like what does it look like i guess is what i'm asking so what the face looks like is a really good question yeah um people with prosopagnosia can't remember identities essentially so they have to rely on other features like hair or tone of voice to know who they're talking to okay um so there's this little area in the brain it's called the fusiform face area uh it's in the fusiform gyrus and if it gets injured um, then one of the outcomes could be that you become face blind. So I, I'm not sure exactly if it's like you can't access the templates that you have memorized, if right. templates exist, um, or maybe you have trouble putting all the features together to now to uh, configurally process a face. Right. Um, but a face is just a bunch of features that that person can't seem to put together into an identity. Mm -hmm. And they can't seem to access like the memory of that face? Is that, or just while they're look, actually looking at it, they can't recognize I it. I don't know that enough is known on prosopagnosia. Yeah, that's really at, interesting. At this point, although you can correct me. Yeah, I, I don't know it's that. Quite, yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's just interesting, just kind of, it's just an interesting phenomenon in general. Yeah. Like, uh, and I could I could imagine very distressful, or distressing for individuals that have it. Well, yeah, imagine you go home to your wife and you're kind of second guessing if, yeah, that's like, your wife in your home yeah, or, or, just, or whatever yeah absolutely um yeah. if you're a teacher and you're instructing students and you can never ever remember who is who in your class mm -hmm. um lots of people who have prosopagnosia say that they might avoid a job that has lots of social interactions because they would feel uncomfortable not remembering who people are or they'd feel bad for right. oh, i've already met this person a hundred times mm -hmm. why can't i recognize them or why am i slower to recognize them absolutely yeah, yeah that makes sense yeah and it's I think it's there's two things that are really interesting to me and one is something that you kind of mentioned earlier is 
like they can still use uh, they can still use other cues to identify somebody typically so like their gait or you know their stance or their tone of voice or hair or something so they can use other cues to help make those you know those connections with their mm-hmm. their internalized memory of that person so it suggests in some way that it's actually a deficit between the connection between like the face and and the uh, and the actual memory of the individual but what's also neat about it i think or fascinating at least is that the it kind of gives rise to this idea that we have a particular part of the brain and that particular part of the brain's sole job or one of their sole jobs is to be able to identify faces mm-hmm. um so when we think about human beings as being very social creatures you know we've developed this you know there's this spot in our brain that's highly uh highly specialized in this one task yeah and that makes sense kind of like when what you were saying earlier Todd is like you know this is one of the things that we see the most like in our environment so it makes sense that there's a, a, a portion of the brain that's dedicated to that job is to identifying faces so it kind mm-hmm. of it kind of makes sense to me that we use it so often and we're around, like that's the stimuli that we are most attuned to to seeing so there would be you know a lot of resources put into yeah being mm-hmm. effective at it yeah yeah uh, really interesting so sorry you were <laughs> before we got off on yeah, the aside because it's quite interesting so you you're talking about that that certain population within the study that you're looking at you use that sorry were you using that as a control or what was sorry what was the, the so, point that you're making so, um yeah. these people with prosopagnosia it's it's very interesting we know a lot about what we know about vision from people who have had some sort of interruption to their perception right um so if say someone gets acquired prosopagnosia and no longer can recognize identities that doesn't necessarily mean that they have a deficit in expression perception so they might still be able to tell who they're talking to as sad, angry, fearful, surprised, disgusted, um, even though they don't know who they're talking to. Wow. Um, so that would suggest that these two processes are separate in the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, so that brings up the question, why in autism are these two processes seemingly related mm-hmm. to each other? Um, so what our idea is, is that if both processes are still kind of in that limbo of development or they haven't been developed enough. That means you haven't reached expert level status. Um, You're still getting better. So if both are still getting better, then it makes sense that they might be related. Right. Hmm. Interesting. If if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And the two processes, sorry, just to clarify, like the two processes you're talking about is like acquiring the ability to identify faces or face perception. And then you're talking about social motivation. Is that correct? Or is just... Those, the more to identify faces. faces and then to identify expressions. Right. So mm-hmm. those two things are seemingly together with uh, they are the literature is suggesting that they're kind of together with adults with autism, but not for uh, I can't even say the word. What's prosopagnosia. The, prosopagnosia. Ad, ad, people with prosopagnosia. Correct. Got and that. neurotypical adults. Right. Oh, so okay, these yeah, two yeah. processes would be uncorre- uncorrelated. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 Uh, in typically developed adults. and so okay and so, so now it's coming all together here uh, <laughs> and so now and that's why you guys are using the social motivation theory in this essence because you think that that's driving the you know their effectiveness at, at identifying face or perceiving faces and their, their their emotions yeah yeah so so how are you um essentially getting at this like how are you testing this in their studies so how our lab has looked at it in the past is we would compare ability on some face identity test some face expression test, and then we'd compare that those scores to scores in uh, social motivation. And so what we found, or my lab found, was that only in people with 
where people with autism with low social motivation, did we see a relationship between their social motivation scores and their ability with faces? Mm. So what that kind of says to me, at least, is that people who have higher social motivation or more comparable scores to the neurotypical population, they've reached some sort of experience threshold where now they are no longer reliant on more experience to get better. Mm-hmm. So those people with higher social motivation are essentially, we'll call them experts now. Um, and what we say about those people with low social motivation is that they possibly haven't had enough experience to get to their peak performance. So they're still reliant on more and more experience and practice to get better. So what I'm looking at is to see if social motivation and actual experience are even related. So we're kind of using this social motivation idea as a proxy for your experience with faces. Um, however, that there's no empirical evidence saying that, oh, these, just because you don't like being around faces means you see way less. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, with this too, I mean, the amount of exposure to media and things like that, I mean, are people less, are they seeing less faces now? Because you, you can watch movies and shows and see see things on all these types of media and you're seeing faces and expressions right so really if they're not socially motivated does that necessarily mean that they're not around faces and they're not seeing them as much that's right well you you could go days without ever needing to see a face yeah get your food delivered watch tv Mm -hmm. um so you're seeing faces still if you're watching media yeah um is it is that the same i guess in you know would would you think that that kind of in-person conver- like conversation and reaction to people's facial expressions, would that be different than, you know, looking at TV and seeing them react? You know, would that, would that, would that, would that allow somebody to be mm-hmm. an expert? You know, I mean, could somebody be an expert without actually physically ever seeing someone's face just by watching and watching interactions and things like or, that? Or maybe, maybe to put it into a more hyperbolistic sort of setting, could you make somebody an expert by having them sit down in front of a computer Absolutely. and just look at faces. Yeah. Just look at faces all day, just flip through faces mm-hmm. without actually ever being physically present and actually physically seeing faces. Yeah. I I, I would personally argue, I don't know the exact answer to that. I don't know if anybody's I, legally yeah. allowed to do that. Yeah. Typically, so. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> it's typically a bit of a touchy yeah. area, that one. I can tell you that we are better at certain sizes of faces. So if you're watching a screen across the room and the face was smaller than you'd ever see in real life, you're probably not getting the same quality of exposure compared to if you were walking around talking to people. Um, So this kind of leads into what I'm doing from one of my studies. And what we're doing is collecting, it's, we're calling, well, we're not the first ones to call it this, but we're collecting people's face diets. Hmm. So (laughs) very Hannibal, the cannibal approach, right? (laughs) (laughs) So so there's two ways people go with this, the Hannibal Lecter or um, what can I eat to get a better jawline or But it's neither of those. (laughs) Unfortunately, no. (laughs) Uh, A face diet is the quantity and quality of exposure to faces in your day-to-day life. So in your routine, basically how many faces are you seeing? How many novel faces are you seeing? Are you just seeing your brother 100 times a day? Mm -hmm. Are you seeing new faces, um, novel face strangers? Um, And what's the quality of them? Are you having up-close conversations with these faces? Are you off in a corner looking at these faces in the distance? 
Um, are you just looking at a bunch of back of heads? <laughs> if you are talking to these faces, are you looking at their eyes, their nose, their mouth, their their body over their shoulder? Right. Um, so all these things together can kind of combine and create someone's face diet. Mm-hmm. And just like meal diets, if better well-balanced diet, we think would lead to better um, performance in these different face tasks. I, another thing to kind of add to that, and it makes sense, this like this face diet, but I mean, just from like, uh, you know, personal relationships, the more you spend with some more time you spend with somebody, say your wives or whatever, uh, you know, you will get to know their face and the way that they react and what that emotion is, what emotion is linked to those reactions. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think, I mean, you see that within couples or long, long-term couples, um, you know, family members where they'll be able to recognize your emotions before you, you actually verbalize them. Right. Because they're so their face diet of that specific per- face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So like if, if they're feeding their, brain with that face more often they're going to be able to adapt to that and know or be more perceptive of yeah. that face and be able to respond quicker perceptive, you know, maybe, perceptive and identify identifying identifying the emotions yeah. and things like that that, that would make sense right totally yeah. you, you've yeah. learned that person yeah i yeah. mean like yeah and then you can see that like you know you might be able to see someone's look from across the room if you're very perceptive and you know them mm-hmm. then you know you'll be able to adapt and be like okay that they're uncomfortable right now or they're Time happy to leave or, the party yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah that's like the general thing is like yeah. oh they're like let's get the hell out of here yeah. you're the only one that can can read that right because you know them mm-hmm. uh, i think that's really cool um, so you're using face diet then to kind of predict th- the ability to perceive this in the adult, uh, autism population then? Is that, that's the goal? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you might be wondering how do you collect if someone's face diet? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. That yes. was yes. the next so question. You can't like look at their stomach. And <laughs> yeah. Um, so what we're doing is we use, uh, glasses and they have a, a camera right in between the eyes essentially. Mm-hmm. And they take a picture every 30 seconds and we give them to our participants and the participants wear them for uh, a full day. And hopefully it's a routine day for them. We, we ask them afterwards, how routine was your day? Did you change your behavior, yeah. et cetera? Yeah. Um, most people say they kind of forget they're wearing them, which is, which is good. They kind of look like... I was about to ask how they look. Uh-huh. <laughs> Are they stylish in any way? <laughs> they kind of look like 90s Oakleys. Okay, so not bad. Yeah. So like... Maybe cool in the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 30 years ago. Yeah, or like... Um, <laughs> or a baseball player now. Or like a uh, baseball player or a basketball player who are wearing prescription goggles. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah that's not a great look. Like a little bit chunky. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. they have to have the, the tech in them as well, right? So yeah. it's, it's not like it's going to be like your your average spy movie glasses that are recording yeah. video. It, correct. Yeah. Uh, and another thing with like spy glasses um the battery super low right or the battery is uh small yeah so usually participants have to keep it charged into a, like an external battery pack okay. not usually every single time yeah um so that they can remain running throughout the whole day right uh so you've got these glasses on with a cord coming out um so it's a, a pretty involved study to be a participant in for sure yeah um, certainly and how long are they doing this for? So you said they, you do it in a day. How often, How long are they going to be wearing these glasses? Is it just one day? Just one day. Okay. Yeah. And, and so hopefully they'd wear them between eight and ten hours. Right. Mm. Uh, often doesn't doesn't okay. happen. Yeah. yeah. It's more like five to eight. Mm-hmm. Um, the glasses, sometimes people say they're uncomfortable. Some people are fine with them. So it, uh, it all depends on the person, really. Yeah. Um, they bring the glasses back in and we get thousands of images. Yeah, I was going to say, that's yeah. how many per day? That'd be a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, so 12, if they wore them the whole time, it's about 1,200 still frames. Individual pictures, yeah. Wow. 
so a lot of photos. So it's a lot of photos. So then we go through these photos and this is how we analyze their face diet. Right. Um, it's not perfect. It's not like a video of their whole day. Mm. Um, but I think it gives a pretty good idea of someone's day-to-day experience. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we run the photos through this program and it finds faces. Okay, I was, I was hoping that you, yeah. you were going to say, <laughs> not say someone was going to yeah. go through. Some poor RA is just sitting there. say when there's a face in a picture and yeah. record it. Uh, well, just wait. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <No. laughs> so the program goes through. The program uh, was written by a student a few years ago. It's really great, but it sometimes makes mistakes. Mm. So um, just like humans who are known to see faces and objects that aren't faces, mm-hmm. uh, like plugs, the program right. makes the same mistake. Mm. So as you go through and double check, all the plugs are circled. If someone has a happy face sticker on their computer, right. that's circled. So there's a check point at, the, at sure. this stage. Yeah. Um, and we go through and we delete the faces that aren't faces and circle the ones that were missed. Yeah. And then we go through a second round. Uh, two different people have to do it so we can get some inter-rater reliability. We can trust what we're getting. Um, and we annotate every single face by hand. <laughs> oh, boy. So that's a very grueling process then for how, like, God knows how many participants too, right? Because that's 1,200 per participant. Yeah, so I'm thinking like, Okay, let's just say hypothetically, <laughs> I don't know, on average, how many how many photos, if they were wearing that for the full 12... It's 1,200. 1,200 photos, I know, but out of that, how many are flagged as having faces in them, typically? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a, that's a good question. So we have... It would a, depend, right? It would depend on their face. Well, type. certainly it would yeah. depend depends on the, on the person. Yeah. Uh, depends if they threw the glasses on after they leave my lab and they jump on the 99, which is yeah. very busy bus in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Ding, 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 ding. So ding, there's, yeah. there's hundreds of faces. Yeah. Uh, they can stand on a busy street corner or drive home. And now I've got crosswalks of people, of faces. Yeah, right. Um, so it, re- it really depends. We have done the study in adults, just typical adults. And we found that 12 minutes of every waking hour, people are surround or there's a face in the environment. Like in their like uh, physical environment, not just like media or anything like that. Yes. Yeah. So we don't, uh, we don't look at media, fa- mm-hmm. faces from media, and uh, we don't actually look at children. Okay. okay. I think that was just a kind of like an ethics thing. And right. also we have to try to estimate what size faces are and kids have small heads. Uh, <laughs> and so all the math that went behind figuring out how on average, how far away a face is, mm-hmm. um, can't be applied to small faces. Right. right. Fair enough. Yes. Yeah. It would get mighty challenging. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so that's where your research is taking you then. And so your, if you, are so willing to share what are, what would your hypotheses be i imagine that face diet is going to be a big predictor of this of facial perception not just the actual social motivation yeah so that's that would be my my guess yeah is it, it would make logical sense that people who have low social motivation would be exposed to um they have low, less low, yeah, less and low, possibly diets, less yeah. quality face faces right mm-hmm. um whereas people with high social motivation if everything follows logic would peep there would be more faces in their in their face diet mm-hmm. absolutely yeah. yeah it's really interesting and so i mean this works really cool what do you let's talk about implications because i know there are there are a lot of implications with this with your specific population but what do you see this work doing or what are the implications of your work for this population of adults with uh, autism 
That's a really good question. <laughs> Take your time. With um, yeah. Sometimes, as I've noticed as researchers, we get so caught up in the little details of our what we're studying, and we sometimes forget to really think about what the big picture is, which is what this question is. is yeah. mm-hmm. What are the implications? What does this mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the results of this study and s- some of my other planned studies would have even broader um, implications on how we understand how face perception develops. Mm-hmm. So the results don't need to just be um, descriptive of people with autism. Mm-hmm. We're going to look at people or adults with low social motivation who don't have any diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And then we're also going to look at social motivation in people with prosopagnosia. Right. So all my all the ideas I've kind of talked about so far are good. They're all kind of correlational ideas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They were assuming that social motivation goes to less experience, and that less experience goes to face deficits. Mm-hmm. But someone could argue just as easily, well, what if there's just face deficits to begin with? Mm-hmm. If yeah. people are bad at faces, it makes total sense that, that it would predict it low would predict motivation. low social motivation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They'd go each way. Yeah. yeah. So that's why we're looking at people with prosopagnosia because they're um, we're just looking at people with developmental or congenital prosopagnosia. So mm-hmm. essentially, face blindness from birth. Um, so these people are born with uh, face deficits. However, they aren't born with the social communication and interaction deficits like people with autism. Right. So we can look at the relationship of those two things in this population mm. and maybe get an idea of directionality from it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. If being bad at faces doesn't make you have lower social motivation, then we can really get more bang for a buck out of our other hypotheses. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. It's really interesting that, you know, a lot of obviously your work when we're talking about prosopagnosia, but also a lot of work in sort of cognitive domains, historically at least, has come about and a lot of the answers that we've gotten do come about from individuals with particular deficits and so being you know obviously ethically we can't go in there and decide hey as of today you have prosopagnosia we're just going to get rid of the ffa for for you but (laughs) we can make a lot of inferences from people who do have those disabilities and that's actually in many ways helped us being us being researchers better understand you know the way that the brain works and just how complex and complicated it is so i think it's a really like obviously a really great design to be able to <laughs> take that information and, mm-hmm. and look at it. What is the, like one thing that I always think about when I'm, you know, trying to figure out my studies and stuff is what are the prevalence rates of whatever it is I'm looking for? What is the prevalence rate of prosopagnosia? Or, or do you expect, maybe better put, do you expect to have challenges in recruiting individuals with prosopagnosia to participate in your studies? I think mm-hmm. in Vancouver, okay, I could be completely wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, we have between three and five people. Okay. Um, total. So, and they've oh. probably been uh, recruited for studies in associated labs before. So, Certainly, yeah. hopefully, we can recruit them through the uh, other labs we work with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, not there's it's hard to get uh, people with prosopagnosia for sure. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, and then probably th- these people are are sick of being asked to do things and I don't, I can't speak for anyone else, but I can imagine if you have this thing and everyone wants to know about your thing. And yeah. so you're continually yeah. being asked to be in different studies and, uh, 
no one want, likes to be a lab rat. I don't yeah, think. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So if I can go back to your yeah. implications question, yeah, absolutely. I think I got totally sidetracked. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> but what um, if if we know how experience can influence our perception in very broad terms, then we can create different programs or um, or things to help people who aren't as good at expression perception or identity perception, as long as they don't have like a injury preventing them from being able to do these things. Uh, maybe if we caught them at the right time, at the right point of development, um, we can have them practice these things. And mm-hmm. that way it, it still might not be done the same as another person, but at least it can be done to a point where they can successfully keep a job and right. Um, right. move up in their company or whatever. It yeah. Is. I mean, see improvements relative to wherever they're at. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Like you don't have to be the best face perceiver in the world, but as long as you're improved, you can make improvements. I think that's a huge implication for you guys and for the work that you do. Definitely. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. That's really cool. Um, Todd with this work, uh, I'm curious if there's any myths or misconceptions related to, you know, uh, face perception or social motivation or autism or anything that you work that you do. Are there any myths or misconceptions that are pr- particularly prevalent, uh, that you've seen? Well, it's kind of funny we talk about the social motivation thing. Well, it's not funny. It's what, what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, there's a difference between liking something and wanting something, mm-hmm. I think. Um, so I think a lot of people assume people with autism, they're not as good at social interactions, and therefore they aren't as interested in them. That's not necessarily the, the truth. And I've, uh, for my master's degree, the studies that I did took four hours over two days, so well, eight hours total. So I spend a lot of time with all my participants Mm -hmm. and we'd go to lunch and chit chat and hang out and didn't seem like anyone was shy to talk to me or Mm -hmm. they're very interested in the the things they were interested in. And um, I think that's a bit of a misconception that uh, people with autism don't want to have these interactions or aren't interested in them. Right. The, I, the idea that they'd all be low in social motivation kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I think that's really, that's a really good point. Is mm-hmm. that, yeah. You, your motivation is not necessarily going to, it's not indicative necessarily of your behavior as well. It's something also to consider too. Right. You may be motivated, particularly motivated to do something, but it not, might not be directly linked to your behavior as well. Yeah. 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 Uh, I'm not sure where to go with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, that's, I'm really good at uh, leading with questions that don't really have, <laughs> don't, don't, don't actually have a, there's no real question there. <laughs> yeah, I've gotten really good at that. <laughs> I think that's a really cool, uh, a really interesting misconception as well. I think, um, yeah, I mean, it's just a lot of autism in general. I think a lot of people think they know what's going or like what's going on. I think I'm particularly naive when it comes mm-hmm. to autism as well. Uh, and what that entails. So I think there's been a lot of informative things that you've been saying about uh, that population as well. I think uh, another, um, just from my conversations with with people, another uh, misconception is um, one of the other diagnostic criteria for autism is restricted and repetitive behaviors and interests. Mm -hmm. Um, So most people take this, well, not most people, but some people take this to mean that People with autism just love little monotonous tasks that are repetitive, um, that are very detail-oriented. And while this is true for some, it's not true for for all people. So I know one, one of my participants came in, and uh, a large company has a, a good program for recruiting people with autism to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and he moved across the country to work in this program. 
and they just had him doing these little monotonous tasks that were very detail-oriented. And he was very frustrated because he's like, I don't like doing that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I thought this was like a very cool, inclusive program, which it isn't in one way, but it's, it's based on an assumption right. um, that might not necessarily be, be true mm-hmm. for all people. Um, so the biggest thing I would say is that just like anyone else, each individual is their own individual with their own interests, their own uh, capabilities, their own um, interests, I'll say again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, we can't, we can't and we shouldn't be sort of taking this sort of diagnostic criteria and assuming that it fits in only one way and we can only apply it in this one way. Yeah. Um, one other very interesting thing, I'm just talking about interesting no, things. No, no, I love like, it. This hey, um, so that I find <laughs> uh, is gender differences okay. in, in autism. Uh, so the comparisons between males and females with autism is about four to one. So for every four boys diagnosed, there's one female. Okay. Um, I didn't know that. And just like mm-hmm. in a neurotypical populations, when you're recruiting people, females tend to be more interested in yeah. participating. I don't know why mm-hmm. uh, females just seem to be more interested in coming into the lab and helping you with, a, with an experiment mm-hmm. or a study. Um, same thing in autism. I try to keep this four to one ratio, but I tend to get more more females coming in. So I kind of have to even say, I never would say no, um, but I have to match carefully. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and in talking to these, some of these females, um, they, a few, were diagnosed after university because they figured out during university that they had autism themselves. Wow. So I found that like very striking, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it says something about the way uh, girls and boys are socialized growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it can be said that girls have more of an expectation to be social. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe females with autism uh, can learn to to fake the things that become signs for boys to get diagnosed. Right. right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like listening and showing empathy and <laughs> all these things uh, that we do not do. Very well. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. So the, these people, they get missed. Yeah. And, yeah. Which is not easy because now they've, they've realized, oh, I have these troubles with these certain things what's wrong with and they've been dealing with it for 20 years and that now yeah. they've been dealing with it for so long they they read something about autism and they go it sounds very familiar yeah so they go to the doctor and they're like why couldn't i know this before i finished my english degree or whatever it is yeah. um i could have um had better strategies for for getting through university absolutely yeah well and, and not just better strategies because i think in some ways they probably have developed really effective strategies for themselves because they've been a you know they've been in these environments and they've um you know had the successes that they've had but i think as well just what other resources would be and would have been available to them had they had this diagnosis at the same stage as others right definitely that's a good wrap up yeah those are all really interesting misconceptions yeah those are those are really interesting i think uh it the more misconceptions that can be talked about and discussed when it comes to autism that are you know empirically <laughs> validated or just like just genuinely i mean anecdotes as well are mm-hmm. always important when it comes to misconceptions but yeah anytime we're doing blanket statements or you know treating people as one group it's never doesn't always seem to be optimal <laughs> yeah, yeah well while you've got a mic in front of you is there anybody you'd like to shout out to or say thank you to or any comment you'd like to make now the floor is yours <laughs> 
shout out. <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> Say hi to your wife. Um, <laughs> I guess I'll I'll shout out my wife, Amara Scott. Uh, I'm going to go meet her now and go to a Canadian <laughs> women's hockey game. Go Canada, uh, she grew up playing hockey, so it's pretty exciting. That's great. And you yeah. don't want to be late for that. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> <laughs> Little known fact, Todd and I both got married this summer, right? Yes. Um, I'm saying to our listeners, that's yeah. a little known. Uh, I know this. Yeah. Yeah. You, you already are aware of this, <laughs> but, uh, we may not be far enough along into marriage to be able to do things like be late for things that are important <laughs> to our wives. Correct. Yeah. 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 We've got to be aware of this at this point. Uh, f- funny thing about me and Kyle, yeah. uh, is I think I kind of met Drake and Kyle maybe three or four years ago. I was doing this TA training thing and I think you guys were both involved. Um, and helping run this training session. And I came in and I had worked for two years and I wanted to get back into grad school. And um, I was just doing this TA training because TAing is part of grad school. Mm-hmm. And you kind of go, oh, these two guys kind of stand out. They're kind of cool. Oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> sucking up to us. <laughs> so, we don't make money off this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, training training's done and... The following, uh, in a, two years later, maybe me and Kyle take this consciousness course together. And it was a really cool course, a lot of discussions about how the mind works and thinks. Um, and I kind of noticed we were like m- sort of similar. Uh, I was like, okay, this guy's kind of similar to me. Anyways, uh, another year passes and I'm thinking to myself, I, I want to start a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'd be really cool to talk about the brain. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm walking through Kenny, which is the psychology building here at UBC. And whose two faces do I see (laughs) up on a screen for Brain Buzz podcast? And I'm just like, fuck, (laughs) fuck's sake. (laughs) And I'm like, those two fuckers stole my idea. (laughs) And then we waited this long to have you on the program. And then... uh, few months ago saw kyle again on the ice in adult men's hockey yeah that <laughs> was like, so weird this is this is weird <laughs> yeah and then we saw each other at this psychology event here um that these two guys run <laughs> <laughs> and we noticed we were both married so i think we're living very parallel lives <laughs> very parallel <laughs> i don't know what's going yeah. on <laughs> yeah if something major happens in your life you gotta let me know so i got a day or two in advance <laughs> <laughs> predictors <laughs> of yeah, each yeah. other <laughs> yeah and i'll do the same for you well Kind of look out for each other that way. I love that. That's yeah. a really funny story. Yeah, and we, I remember we had a couple of beers and we were talking about this exact thing. <laughs> yeah. so I'm like, you have to talk about this. Yeah. I completely forgot. Yeah, that's yeah. uh, so funny. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, uh, yeah I appreciate you coming on, Todd. It was really yeah, fun. Yeah, that was a good uh, time. And uh, your work's really cool. And it's uh, I see the impact. The impacts are going to be uh, profound. Our implications are profound, and yeah. I think it's yeah. uh, we'd love to have you on as you know you go forward. And if you find any new findings, uh, we'd have to, happy to have you on. Give you your fill of being on a podcast, <laughs> yeah, yeah. or you Trust start me, a rival a podcast. I, I think it's so. I guess I'm thinking it's going to be a lot easier to be a guest than a host of a podcast. <laughs> Just a lot more simple. Yeah, but I mean, sure. if you do but start hey, a rival, yeah. if you start a rival podcast, there'll be no bad blood at yeah. all. Uh, and like we Pepsi have- Coke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, well, you ha- make sure you have different color scheme than we do. Or <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you guys for very, very much for having me. I Absolutely. think it's really cool what you guys are doing. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. With that, we'll wrap up the episode. If you've enjoyed, uh, leave us a review. Leave us a few stars, a like, a thumbs up, whatever it might be on whatever platform you found us on. Uh, you've probably navigated to us on Spotify, Apple, or Google. Uh, we're there. We're also elsewhere, out in the ether. Who knows why? But 
there will be found. Um, as always, you can find more information about Todd's work, uh, how to contact him on BrainBuzzPodcast.com, where not only will we have his beautiful photo, but we'll have photos of all our other guests and contact info for them. So Let him know if it's a genuine smile on the photo or not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Uh, until next time, then. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.